1: Days, even. Arsenal Podcasts win more trophies than Tottenham. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name's Elliot Alex You can block me on Twitter at Gunner. Yep. Uh, Tottenham get battered wherever they go, and Arsenal, you know, they pick up trophies. So there was a, an award show last night called the Football Content Awards, a lovely event held uh, in downtown London at Lancaster Gate, and um, a big... You know, beautiful room, tables that had candelabras. I thought candelabras were a bit much, but, you know, it's nice. A uh, great group of people. A lot of interesting people there from The Athletic and Sky and BBC. And, and of course, the AFTV crew was there and people from other clubs. And uh, the Gooners Pod won an award for Best Charity, which is amazing. And um, we were nominated for Best Podcast. And we, we won it. Um, and while I'm laughing, it's partly because of shock, but the thing that I wanted to open this podcast with more than anything is just to say – thank you i mean it it is almost entirely because of the energy that you as a as a listener brought to this process and being willing to support us and vote for us and i know there's a judges component to it but i think it is largely just about the the listener voting and so you know to to do this obviously the like the recognition is not important what's important is just doing the podcast and enjoying it and having great conversations but what the recognition says is that People care about the pod, and that's all that I ever wanted. Tim, Clive, Paul, Scott, Linus. Um, Paul can't be here today, nor Scott uh, or Linus, but we'll get something from each of them about it. I will tell you, here's the really good news, though. I buried the lead. Arsenal did win best football club. So this football stuff, the -the on-the-pitch stuff, we don't need it. We don't need it. Champions of FCA, you'll never sing that. So Arsenal Football Club, uh, thriving wherever they go. And uh, here to discuss that and more important stuff with me is award-winning podcaster Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Congratulations, Tim. Uh,
2: thank you. Congratulations to uh, my fellow podmates as well. And yeah, just to echo uh, Elliot's thanks to everyone for their enthusiasm um, around the podcast, not just uh, for the sake of this this shiny gong uh, <laughs> that we get to lift but um just all the time basically it, it, i'm still taken aback uh sometimes by um by how kind of involved people are and, and even like the people who don't who don't necessarily tweet us or anything like that but i know that that really really like the podcast and listen to it a lot and i know that um I listen to your podcast as overtakers has long since overtaken. I read your column when people come up to me at games. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, don't worry. We're going to do a taps mug. I've written about that this week <laughs> in a moment. So you'll, you'll get to say, say the line. Um, I should also thank Andrew from our blog and the Arscast because he's going into 20 years of making the, the best arsenal content out there and we wouldn't have a show without him. I think most people who do arsenal content, many of us wouldn't be here without him. Um, really someone who, is not just a friend, I'd like to think, but also really inspired me personally. And I know, Tim, you obviously do a lot, a lot of work with him as well. And, and Clive's been on the show, so I mentioned for him as well. Um, Clive is on Twitter at ClivePAFC, but he's also a, a real human being in real life. And if you're on social media, you will have seen the pictures going around of uh, clearly him standing on an apple crate or something, because I don't know how he could have towered over me as, as much as he did. But uh, Clive, we met a- IRL last night. Congratulations on, on, your, on your award.
0: Hello, hello. Uh yeah. It was a very interesting evening, wasn't it? It was nice to meet you by the way. And um and many other people met um James Gunnerblog. Mm. Not met him before. So that was nice. And um yeah, it was, it, I know we're gonna I know we're gonna talk about it a little bit later, but just to follow on from what Tim has spoken about, I think what it what it told me last night, there's a lot of nice people out there. There really is. And I was going home on the train The man message, I I could barely keep up, could barely keep up. And people who don't always tweet out their sort of uh, appreciation or or critique. But when that moment came, they all appeared in my Twitter timeline. And there are a lot of silent people that really do enjoy what we do. And they're really nice about it. So I just want to say thank you, really, because there's a lot of hours spent doing this. And uh, we're very fortunate with the audience that we have. So uh, my appreciation is massive, massive.
1: Yeah, as is mine, and I've been doing these drunk travel diary audios at the end of the night for um, audio recordings for the patrons, and I'm not putting them out widely only because they're mostly boozy and exhausted, so I'm I'm just making sure that I'm coherent, but like, I think the extent to which I felt moved was greater than I expected, and I should reiterate that like, I'm in London right now, and I haven't been in 20 years, you know, when you're working somewhere, you think, oh, I'll always have the opportunity, I remember I lived in New York City, you know, you'd say, oh, I'll make it to the Statue of Liberty, I'll go to the top of the Empire State Building and you like never do those things. Um, when I went to the Emirates two days ago, like it moved me a lot more than expected. Seeing the stones there from you know, at Celebration Corner from the fans, and um, you know, I, I did line Stan's pockets a bit in the armory, so for better or worse, I mean it, it is what it is. But being there physically making the connection to a place that represents something that means so much to me, like it was more moving than I expect. And I think there'll be people listening to this who take it for granted because of proximity, and be like, oh, come on. People who are listening to this from far away who are envious and and aren't able to do this, and it makes me realize how how privileged I am to make this trip at all, and I can tell you it is as meaningful as you'd you'd expect, Um, and everything in between that. But just for me, I can only speak for myself, incredibly moving and made me incredibly excited for the game on Monday. I should mention... Uh, Last Chance Sunday is going to hopefully be really special, hopefully a highlight in addition to the 10-0 victory on Monday uh, at the Victoria Tavern on Holloway Road. Tim will be there. Clive will be there. I will be there. James McNicholas will be there. James Benj will be there. um, uh, Mike from the Gooners Pod, a whole host of of fun and wonderful people will will be there uh, from 3 to 4.30 as a ticketed podcast. And at 4.30, we open it up to everybody to just come and have a drink and celebrate. So I hope you'll join us if you're able to. Let's get on to... Uh, some actual Arsenal football-related content. We won't. We won't do too much navel gazing. We might come back to the event at the end, just briefly, to talk about a few things that happened. I will say that the highlight for me, of course, was meeting Clive, who is absolutely uh, sensational in real life as he is on the podcast, uh, and his son Jay. So, um, Tim, you've written about this this week. Let's do this. We will talk about <laughs> the um, the. Uh, um, game, that <laughs> Palace game, coming up on Monday. But I want to talk to you about this, I guess, what would you call it? Like a press junket type thing you yeah, got yeah. to do with stats sports. Now, for anybody who hears the word stats and is about to tune out, don't. This isn't about XG and shots and and big chances and, and progressive passes. This is the data that's collected in those GPS sports bras the players wear and this biometric data and what it tells us about how they're performing and how they're aging, and, and it's really the cutting edge of how these athletes are being sort of fine-tuned to, to perform at peak uh, level. So maybe you can articulate that better than I just did, but um, yeah. you wrote about it brilliantly, <laughs> and I'd just love to get your, your sort of explanation of what was going on there and, and your take on the
2: influence of it. Yeah, sure. So it, it was a press junket because, um, that that sports, uh, they're releasing a product and basically, cause they already, you know, they're already embedded within several elite football clubs, rugby clubs, hockey teams, um, across men's and women's sports and everything. Like obviously, um, you know, from their point of view, they want to get in as many elite sports clubs as possible, but like elite sports, they've got that market locked down. Um, and what they want to do is they want to release this data to the public, to amateur footballers. And the way they put it is, um, I mean, don't quote me on these numbers. This is what they said. They said there's like 450 million amateur footballers in the world. So why would we not try and get that as a bit of a market share? Um, so so what essentially they're doing is a slightly pared down version of what the players get in those in those kind of GPS sports bra things you see them wearing and actually it's not the vest just houses a little device that's like a little black pod and has all of their physical outputs now the professional players get around 250 outputs and the reason for that is obviously they have sports scientists at their beck and call to interpret all that across the squad etc etc obviously amateur players do not have that so there's like 16 metrics I think Um, so, so that's like the product anyway, but what was, and and I think that's an interesting idea by the way, the, the idea of like bringing this kind of data to your amateur player so that they can like look at how many high intensity sprints they're doing in training and things like that, what they might need to do for recovery because you get an app with it or something and, and, you know, it will give you suggestions based on all your high intensity sprints have gone down in the last couple of sessions. So maybe you want to do this, or maybe you want to think more about recovery, Um, and stuff like that so but but what you can also do and I asked whether there were IP challenges with this and apparently not through the partnership they have with Arsenal anyway but I wonder if there will be more IP challenges over this if they try to expand this a lot is that you can compare your data to Arsenal players basically and and part of that is a little bit of gamification, a little bit of fun, a little bit of okay. I play left back for my pub team. Let's see how I rack up against Kieran Tierney. Um, but part of it is like optimization. If you're if you're quite a serious amateur footballer, um, you know whether that's in non-league or even lower or just a Sunday team or whatever. And, and basically, if you play for a team that requires you to train. Um, the the idea is that you can really compare yourself against players in the Arsenal squad, and you can compare yourself against academy players. You can compare yourself against uh, academy players in the women's team, the women's team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it it's on one hand, it's about like trying to push the level up of an amateur player, but on the other, it's it's probably a bit of fun as well. And as part of the day, I couldn't take part in this because unfortunately I have a chronic hip injury. Um, that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Um, but they they got like a few I have a cr- chronic resistance to embarrassment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I have a, a a chronic drinking problem. No, um, and so they got like a, a few like, and I was invited to do this. Like they they just did some training drills uh, with some other guys who were there, and then at the end like gave them their data and where it's really illuminating. And they said this to us at the beginning. Um, and by the way, I've got to give a shout, shout out to Art De Roche from The Athletic who, um, yeah, it fed pretty well across all of the metrics, actually. Is he um, like
1: 23, though? Like, yes. come on. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> that's yeah, that's called be, cheating.
2: <laughs> to be fair, when I was 23, I, I reckon I'd have given some of those good crack. But what mm-hmm. they kind of said at the beginning was like, in a couple of these metrics, you might be able to get close to a player, depending on who it is. And actually looking at the player data, you know, the thing that really leapt out at me was that um, – because they put like a couple of players data up on these cards and they look a bit like top Trump's cards actually, mm-hmm. uh, which I assume is also deliberate, but like, do you know that Callum Chambers is faster than Emile Smith row?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw and, his card actually. And he was like a 93% yeah, athlete or something.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But where, but when you look down the, the metric that basically no one can get close to a professional footballer on is high intensity sprints, and that's mm. basically your repeatability. That's can you sprint, stop, turn, sprint, stop, turn, sprint, stop, turn. And that's where like someone like Emil Smith-Rowe, he, he's better than Callum Chambers at that, which you can judge with your own eyes. But that that's the metric that basically they're like, you can't get near these guys. So there, there was like one guy there who was, I think he was like a fitness instructor of some sort, in good shape, good player, all of that. I think like his... Um, like his max speed was close to Bukayo Saka and Saka's pretty fast. But, and, and so he got quite close in a lot of the metrics, but then it was like high intensity sprinting, like nowhere near. (laughs) And, And the thing is as well, these training drills, they went on for 35 minutes. So it's like, you've got to, you know, consider these guys do this day in day out for longer than that. And um and so yeah, that that was kind of the principle of the day. But I had a really interesting conversation. One with Katie McCabe, um, from the Arsenal women's team. Mm-hmm. Um, uh someone I know pretty well by now. Um, um we just had a chat about how players apply this and what she looks for. So she plays at left back and on the left wing. Uh, she swaps between the two positions and she was talking about like the particular data that she looks for. So she really looks for um Uh, a high intensity running because she's like, particularly if I'm playing left back, I know if I haven't done much high intensity running, I haven't done my job. My that job feels like
1: to- a Kieran Tierney stat to me.
2: <laughs> yep, a- absolutely, absolutely, exactly the same. It's If I haven't been doing that, it means I haven't been forcing the opposition backwards. Mm-hmm. And in her words, she said, that's the stat that brings me into the game, particularly when I play left back. So she's like, that's the one I look at the most. And for other players, it might be something different depending on which position you play. Um, but then I spoke to a guy from stat sports, just a little bit wider around things like gamification. Um, so obviously uh, uh, this product largely marketed at, at, kind of, um, you know, would be athletes or, or sports people from the ages of, I don't know, 18 to 35. And obviously that's a generation that's grown up playing FIFA and things like that. And so that are that very stats literate and the guy from stat sports was saying to me, it's not just in sport either like you watch the news, there's data everywhere. Uh, Look at COVID, for example, none more so than at the moment. He said, you know, that that age group is very data literate. Um, But also like just talking about things like, um, like, and, and there are other things that the technology can do for coaches, for example. So if all of your players are wearing one of those black pods, then essentially what you can also do is you can heat map what the shape of your team looks like when you score and when you concede a goal.
1: Interesting.
2: So you can do stuff like, <clears throat> excuse me, here's, here's what our shape was when we conceded that goal. Right, there's a gap here and you can even measure it and you can say, okay, should my player at this stage of this game been able to close that gap? Like it's the 78th minute and, you know, that's where the goal was scored. Should but my centre-back... I imagine back, coaches
1: like Pep and Arteta that would love this stuff, you know, the jigger yeah. position guys and the, the people that are really positionally aware and specific.
2: 100%. And then it's like, what was the distance? Could he have covered that distance in his mm-hmm. shape, in his fitness at that stage of the game? And it might be yes, in which case it's... You didn't put it in, did you? You didn't run. Or it might be no, in which case, okay, that gap was too big. We gave that guy too much to do. But there was, there was loads of other really interesting stuff, particularly around age as well. So um, I'll try and wrap this up with this point. Um, but they were talking about how different age groups might apply the data. So if you're a young up-and-coming player, a lot of it's about education and you're learning about what you're good at. Um, and you're learning about your physical profile. And the way um, Barry from Statsports described it to me is when we talk about footballers, we talk about their attributes, like he's a good passer, um, You know, he's, he's got good control, he's got a good shot. But actually, what once we become more literate with this data, we'll build a physical profile for players, and clubs are already doing that. So they'll be able to say, actually, this guy's good at high-intensity sprinting. He should be playing fullback, really. Why, why are we playing him up front? Um, And so you'll be able to build a picture of a player. Whereas when you're a bit older, it's more about preservation and things like that. And it's more about recovery and it's more about, you know, are you going into the red zone or what else do you need to do? And the way he described it as well was that younger players have been on board with this data for a bit longer and the journey was a bit harder with older players because there was a misconception that the data might catch them out. And particularly Mm. if they're kind of angling for a contract, And it's like, I don't want all this data saying I'm slowing down. But actually what they've come to realize is this data will help you not to slow down quite as quickly. And I I asked one of the questions I I asked and I had your voice Elliot, rattling around in my head was about the age curve. And I talked (laughs) about the age curve. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I, I asked, um, I asked, you know, actually, the the age of which footballers are retiring hasn't really moved that much in the last fifty years, and peak years are still considered about the same. It's it's and and so I asked, you know, should this make a difference to that? And he said it it already has in real terms because the demands on the players physically have gone up so much that actually the age curve should have dropped by now. And he said the fact that it hasn't is a testament to this kind of data. So, um, yeah, like r- really, really kind of really interesting stuff. And and they were talking about how like in the Premier League in 1992 compared to now, the the amount of distance that you run in a game is basically the same. But he said like high intensity sprinting has doubled in that time. So it's really different what you're asked to do now compared to kind of 30 years ago. And, and they kind of think that using this will A, help you to do that, and B, or or help you help the players, and B, stop the players kind of keeling over with pinged hamstrings when they try.
1: Yeah, and to be fair, maybe it sticks it back in my face a little bit, which I know everyone will love, in the sense of like, why do you give an Aubameyang a new contract at 31? Maybe because you've got this data that says his high-intensity sprints have never been better, He's repeating mm-hmm. them at a rate that he was repeating them when he was 27, 28 years old. There's no sign that those sprints are declining, that the intensity of them is declining, that the top speed is declining. Right, Tim? So like possessing that data, look, we're going to talk more or about Or he's not how, in the red
2: zone when he does right? it. Right,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And like not everything is measurable and we need to make sure we put that back into context. But I guess for the purpose of like, should we keep this older player for another contract? These kinds of data- can absolutely be the key to knowing if you're making a mistake or not. Yeah,
2: and the, the the player I was... It's interesting you bring up Aubameyang. I didn't mention him by name, but the player I was thinking of was Salah, because obviously that's coming up at the moment. Like, There's a lot of talk. His contract's up in two years, yeah. and he's going to be 32. And so if you're Liverpool, do you say, actually, we're not going to give you a massive pay rise. We're happy to let it run down or... You know, like like, how do they tackle that? And again, I'm sure that they will be assessing his data and trying to make a projection. How good is this guy going to be at 32? Is he still going to be able to do the physical things he's able to do? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it ought to be able to help with things like that. And, for, and actually, I, sorry, I found this interesting as well. We talk about the red zone quite a lot, right? And um, they actually explained what that is or at least how you measure it. And the way they determine whether you're in the red zone is to do with your heart rate. And uh, if your heart's at, I think it's like 85% capacity during exercise, that kind of means you're fatigued. So if you're 85 or over, you go you go into the red zone, basically. And that means that your muscles are more tired and you're more susceptible to injury. So that's what the red zone Interesting. is. Interesting.
1: That's really interesting. Well, we're 20 minutes in and, and Clive hasn't participated yet. So we got to rectify that, I think. But Tim, it is it is fascinating stuff. And I think the thing that I think is always a challenge though, as more data comes into sport, data that is performance data uh, in terms of counting stats and, and progressive passes and XG and then data that's biometric data is that you become at risk of trying to quantify everything and you lose sight of the fact that like, Lionel Messi may not break the charts on a lot of this stuff, but oh, by the way, he can stick it in the top corner. Or, you know, Cesc Fabregas could play a pass through the eye of a needle to a a striker running in behind. And that balancing these data Mm. with the skill aspect of the sport is the secret sauce. And there is a worry that – you could wind up buying a Kolasinac, for example who can run like a freight train and you know maybe maybe yeah, yeah. has some good data but can't actually play any football
2: but then i I'd, I'd also and like there is a danger in using ronaldo and messi as any kind of um any, of any kind of you know barometer um but i'd say like the fact that their clubs um I say let them get away with, like, don't ask them to do any running or anything. I don't think that's because they're not willing or because they're star players and they can do as they please. There there may be an element of that to it. I'm sure it's probably because they're looking at data and going, you can't do what you used to do and we don't want you getting injured trying. So don't worry. yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about pressing or anything like that. Just stand still and, you know, we'll get the ball to you.
1: I, I bet Jamie Vardy would be another interesting example of how that's used. Well, Clive, um, one thing that really struck me in our conversation, I want to talk about two components of this conversation that you and I had last night. One is just that you're using this at your level as well as a coach. And that this isn't just something that's being done for Aubameyang, but as a coach, how do you integrate this? And I, look, I know there's always a danger when you talk about coaching at, you know, like non-league level versus coaching at the, the premier league level. But when it does come to using biometric data i think it can be used in the same way even if the level of the data is a little bit different so i was really interested to hear that you're actually using this uh in in your level of football as well and that it's a tool that you find particularly helpful
0: Yeah, we we use it with a different a different brand which i won't mention (laughs) a different company i mean we're not sponsored Uh, so it's good (laughs) but we don't use it properly really we use it for curiosity really and I was interested when Tim said 250 meters. I'm thinking, wow, that must be some serious measurements. But like, I'm looking at our player we did a couple of weeks ago, and it's just got like distance and top speed and the amount of sprints and sprint distances. I can get I can get a heat map up first half, second half, the breakdown, five minute breakdown of the distance run, and then also what's really useful, particularly at that non-league level, and these are semi-professional guys, and they get paid. Um, what you do in the first half, your, your effort versus second half, which is important at that level because see, they don't train every day. So understanding your fitness is, is really important. How many meters you ran in the first half, second half, things like that. So it's comparative data, comparative speed. And I think it's useful. So sometimes we put it on the players, the fittest players. We put it on those guys and use that as a measure. We've got, we've got a couple of devices. They cost, they're not cheap. <laughs> we've got a couple of devices. So we have to, we can't have the, the squad of 20 with them on. That's a lot of money. And, but I find it a curiosity thing really. And, obviously if you've got one yourself you can measure your own progress and some of the players do have their own devices so it's something that's coming in there's a saying you are what you measure right and if you can't measure it you're not it right so and i think even like non-league players are looking at this looking at the information really to track their progress i mean we all we all got we've all got apple watches now right so it's even to track your progress what you're doing and how you're improving really and more so, also at the elite level, they use it too for injury prevention. And um, you know, we're not looking at that injury prevention. We want to get the the strongest, fittest players, you know, and see where they are, you know, and measure them. But obviously, when you understand your human body a lot more, and you've got a lot more people around you who are experts, I wouldn't look at one of these um, data points and say, "Oh, that player shouldn't play," because I wouldn't know how to interpret the data that way. You know, so I think that's the. That's the big. That's difference, the secret really.
1: sauce, though, isn't it, Clive? I mean, that's, like, the, it's one you can sometimes. I think you can measure things before you know how to use the measurement, and that's the danger. And that was the most fascinating part of the conversation. We, by the way, I should stop to say uh, we don't all have Apple watches, so if Apple wants to sponsor this podcast and send us free Apple watches, they certainly can. Um, but the the point that like p hacking, at what point do you say are players going to catch on to the idea, Clive? Where they say, for example, like I know if I complete. 20 passes into the final third and repeat my sprints X number of times, I'm going to come out as a 99th percentile player and I'm going to be worth that 200,000 pound a week contract. And they start targeting these measurables more than just like team contribute. You know, is it, is it a danger of being too much data that players can then target rather than just targeting, the sort of team concept or actual football skill if you follow what i'm saying
0: it depends on the success criteria of the coach right there's two there's two sort of measurements that always come to mind to me and i think pass completion and shots so there are times when we've all sat and watched games and say come on man play the more dangerous pass well we sit we also sit on podcasts and look at our, our apps as we're doing it and we talk about pass completion he's not a clean passer You know, and yet when someone takes on a dangerous pass, he keeps giving the ball away. Alexis Sanchez, for example, Thomas Partey, for example, he keeps giving the ball away, right? So I think we get a lot more safe passing in football now because of this. And some of the shots on target, I often, or shots made, shot volume, I think some people take shots. I call them ooze for the crowd. They're not scoring. They're just taking a shot, right? so, Mm. But, you know, someone might need four or five shots a game, right, or four or five crosses a game, the fact that the cross is going in the seats, the data sets is across. I think sometimes you get that. And when I first got introduced this um, type of data and information it was really in, around academy football. And and I always found it quite interesting. And I think another aspect to data for players to think about is when people come in to see the manager or academy head with their agent or parent with an opinion on what their boy or their player is doing, The coaches put out this data and say, well, look, this is what your boy is doing. This is what your player is doing. He's not doing what he did last year. So sit yourself down. This is why he's not playing. Do you see what I mean? And this is I'm not sure they would ever use comparative data, but they would know by someone's output and performance where they actually are. And I think that's an interesting way because football is a game of opinions, unlike something like athletics where the clock stops and that's where you are. If you can bring in data like this, you sort of add more statistics and information to an individual opinion. Individuals' opinions can ruin or make careers. And with the money involved in football right now, you can't just say, well, I just don't fancy that player. That's no longer yeah. enough. That is no longer enough. There's too much involved. There's too much your career involved. And this information is used in training, of which we you know And then every aspect and every aspect of what happens at that training ground is measured. And and it's become a religion for the players. So I I find it interesting. I'm not as up to date as I was a a few years ago, but the things are, when I did go to London Colney, there there were some rooms we weren't allowed into. And I bet it was a room where so a lot of this information was held. It's there like Willy is-
1: Wonka's Chocolate Factory. You go in there, you turn into a blueberry and float out of the building or something. They
0: literally said, you can't go in there. That's a performance room. And it's like, okay. And everyone, everyone just raised their eyebrows. I mean, I dread to think, not dread to think, I wonder what, how much information is out there that we just don't know and how it's used. It'll be wonderful to understand it fully.
1: And it it makes you realize that anytime you criticize a manager, anytime you criticize a player, there are layers of it where you may be right. There are layers of, for example, maybe there's a substitution and you find yourself thinking, oh, how can he be doing that? But maybe what the data is telling the manager is, we know around 70 minutes, this player goes from 85% repeatability on his sprints to 60%. And at that level, we can't keep him on the pitch, you know. That and again, it. I'm oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you say carrying a refrigerator on his back, or whatever. Like I and I realize I'm I'm oversimplifying the way you would in, interpret that data. But those kinds of calculations, the the other thing is, look, you ever watch a game and the player doesn't get to the ball and you're like, oh, get there, make the run. Why didn't you do that? And you forget like. These players, their heart is bursting out of their chest. Their lungs are heaving. Like there are times I've tried to th- throw a candy bar wrapper into the garbage, missed, and didn't feel like getting up to go put it in the garbage. These guys are, you know, the, the hardest workouts I've ever done are called these HIT workouts, high-intensity interval training. You literally think you're going to die or throw up or both. I guess you'd throw up before you die because you can't throw up after you died. But like, um, and these guys are doing that basically, oh, by the way, while trying to kick balls, you know, with, some touch and feel and dribble and score think, and so yeah mm-hmm.
0: i think the intensity thing is something you, you really it is the key uh, i can remember you know going kind of being at an academy and there were like three cages right with the under 14s in and they then should was, not
1: keep the under 14s in cages that doesn't <laughs> seem
0: right yeah, football cages are like the street cages right here yeah, the under 14s doing a nice little f- f- five side against each other they look really nice and And then there's the under-15s again. It it was, was, but it was quicker. It was a bit more intense. And then they went to the scholars, and my goodness, it was full-on, unbelievable. Every inch count. There were teeth coming out the windows. I mean, oh my god, it was just incredible, wasn't it? Talk about football in inches. It was just like every inch counted. And then you realise as the players get better, older, more physical higher in quality, the intensity levels were frightening. And that was a League One club, by the way. So I I find you know training, I find it incredibly interesting how these guys can do this time and time and time again. Recover, come back, repeat, easily, repeat. It's and then I have the composure and still find space to then play this football that we want to see. You know, mm. I think it's, I think it's, you know, i said that before, I bit. don't think they get paid enough. <laughs> I'm well,
1: well, well, <laughs> I'm not going to go that far, go <laughs> but the, the, the last bit is the bit. And I want to shift gears to the, the palace preview, but Tim, I'll, I'll finish with this. I think there are some people that would hear this and worry that what we are going to do is turn football into athletics. And that there is a part of the game mm. where I think there are people that look at like the Ronaldinho's of the past and don't see as much of that around. And some of this is old man yells at cloud. You know, but are we losing some of that fantasy in exchange for pace and power and sprinting and athleticism? And is the game becoming a more muscular, athletic game and less of a a technical, skillful game? I'll never forget the video that was going around. I think it was when Sesk was at Chelsea, maybe. There's a cone drill and it was a speed based thing carrying the ball from cone to cone. And and Sesk. dominated all these like young academy level players who are much fitter and faster than him because he just had a smarter route to travel around the cones and better close control of the ball. Do you, do you think that the sort of zealotry around some of the data that's developing is at risk of obscuring the sort of uniquely technical and skillful and thoughtful parts of the game that can't be replaced purely by athleticism?
2: But potentially yeah and and i think we're potentially kind of there um to be honest or at least we're on that road at the moment i i do feel that watching football at the moment it's weird because i do really appreciate the the physical side like i like transition football and and i kind of like that but at the same time I, yeah I, there is a part of me that that watches kind of premier league and champions league and and sometimes i i think yeah, these are, these are athletes who happen to be really, really, really good footballers. But I mean, what actually, what one of the exercises they had people doing was that kind of dribbling around the cones thing and seeing how quickly you could do it, which is Hmm. like you say, which is as much cognitive and, and throughout the day, they were like at pains to point out, look, talent is the big separator here. Like you, you get the athletic ability when you train every day. Um, in elite environments, but you don't get to train every day in elite environments to show the talent, and that that is the separator.
0: Um, did so did I, you guys catch the nations final at the weekend? This,
2: this, I, I
0: didn't know the uh, France Belgium. Yeah, I uh, was. Was it? Um, that France oh, no, was, um, Spain wasn't it? France, France Spain.
2: Spain. That's it. France Belgium was the semi, wasn't
0: it? I tell you what stood out to me in that game. I mean, Tim, I'm, I, I urge you to, if you can, if you can get, catch that first half in particular, I don't think that for at least 40 minutes there wasn't an unbelievable contest for the ball in every inch of that pitch. I haven't seen for years how a team can expand and then contract both teams and still stay in contact with their men. That needs elite physical fitness, and they had it, and they had it for ages it's only late to that, that game stretch out i mean we are watching a transformation in football and I, I there's no way you can't think this this type of information is not playing a in now yeah, yeah i
2: mean sorry go ahead tim please yeah i was gonna say yeah definitely but then like that there, there is a really strong technical element to it as well like one touch passing moves and things like that and i know there's um i know Arsene wenger said this a couple of years ago and there's some studies that they think like the next the next data point in football will be cognitive, will be about how quickly you make decisions and um, how your brain performs under stress. So maybe that will redress some of that balance. But I, I also think just on your question, Elliot, about whether we're, we're losing like the Ronald and players like that, I do also think that these things are quite circular. And what will probably happen is that it'll all go down this route of being like quite robotic and athletic. And then a smart manager will think, Well, actually, maybe the value of someone who upsets the structure is even bigger. Um, And then, like one, one like quite forward-thinking manager will think, "No, I'm I'm going to get a player like that because everything's so structured now. That how will they handle, um, you know, a a player like unstructured players? A bit like um, the way that kind of four four two hasn't totally come back into fashion, but a lot of good teams play it now, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's almost like other teams." aren't used to it if you play it in certain ways because you can block passing out from the back for example if you've got two strikers you block passing lanes because everyone passes out from the back mm-hmm. and um, I remember like an argument a couple of years ago about actually we, we kind of done away with the target man striker which in England and particularly in the 80s and 90s was the most popular type of striker but now like young centre-halves aren't used to that type of player so maybe like maybe you get a comeback for like the Kevin Davis style John John Fashionu um, type striker. I mean, I'd imagine that the rules of the game just don't work in the favour of those players anymore. But do you know what I mean? Like that kind well, of... it
1: Dominic, Dominic Calvert-Lewin and, you know... Yeah, well, yeah, yeah well, I actually think... That, more than that.
0: That's a, that's a really interesting point because I think that, that player is coming back. And the, and the reason why is the... How you can start playing now with players allowed to be in the area. So with players allowed to be in the area, teams are you, you've got your centre backs there with a the goalkeeper, and he and he pops it out to the centre backs, and you have your build up patterns, etc. What teams are doing is, is they're squeezing onto those centre backs. So what's the next best thing to do? Go they're over awesome. the press, mm-hmm. yeah. And who's that too? Dominic Calvert Lewin. So there are trends brought on by rules, you know. And um, I think that's an interesting one to watch. And just one last thing about speed and intensity. Their speed, and intensity in straight lines, like Musa Sissoko, ex-Tottenham boy, straight lines, unbelievable speed. Bang! As soon as you ask him to flip off that line, then he just falls off the train tracks, right? So, the things that Bukayo Saka has that makes him special, and Raheem Sterling is—they have speed, agility. And that's what Smith Rowe has compared to Callum Chambers. Tim, speed, agility, in out, change of direction, really high speed with control of the football, and that's the talent angle. That's the bit that no one can stop. So, in fact, Callum Chambers can run the same speed as Smith Rowe. But when Smith Rowe runs at him and turns out 90 degrees and Callum Chambers' boots stay in the ground, that's why Smith Rowe's got number 10 on his back. And that's that's what they're practicing for that core strength, that balance, that speed, agility is the separator because everybody's fit. Everybody's yeah, fit. Yeah. And having the talent at that level to do those things. I mean, I, I watch Saka movie we all do we watch his movies feet and they're, they're like blurs what the hell's mm-hmm. going on do you know what i mean how do you do that how does that i just don't know how he does it smith mm-hmm. is the same she shouldn't be shouldn't be moving like that with that body yet he can you know i think it's incredible how the the talent is it all goes together to make the player but in my view everything's getting better it's yeah. all improving and we've got data to actually tell us that so i think it's good
1: well you know, and that's the funny thing about data. Sometimes it just gives you, it allows you to quantify something that we've known about for a long time. Like, what did we always talk about with Aaron Ramsey, his incredible engine? Well, now we just know what that means, right? Why could Aaron Ramsey get into the box, you know, burst into the box, second man runs and then get back and defend it? Well, it's because of this stuff. And Tim, you, you mentioned intellect. The funny thing is the NFL has a test called the Wonderlook test. The Wonderlick test is designed to measure the intelligence of players coming out of college for the draft and stuff. And they view it as a very important component, especially for certain positions that are seen as being more cerebral. But you know, it's something that all the players do. Now, look, I am extremely skeptical of and suspicious of any test that seeks to summarize the intelligence of a human being, whether it's an IQ test or an achievement test or anything. I think they are all flawed. But the mere fact that they have one and they try to do it means they recognize that the cerebral part of the game is such an important component, and if you're quantifying the physicality of it without trying to quantify the cerebral part of it, you are missing a big part of it. So I totally agree that football will attempt to incorporate that. Um, I think we can move think, on
0: to the past. Yeah, yeah, sorry, man. I think they're using. I'm not sure it's the same thing, but they use they're using vision coaches in, in rugby. I'm not sure if it's in football yet, but coaches that help you with your vision and and view of the game, and given how with increased athleticism the pitch is feeling smaller, you need to have your eyes open. So I be that could be the next thing that we start to see.
2: One of one of the things they have in the Arsenal gym that they use with the academy players is VR.
0: Mm, um, so you can
2: put on yeah you can put on a headset like you could put on Bukayo Saka's uh put on a headset and watch like the game from the point of view of Bakayo Saka and you That's can brilliant. like like almost like you're seeing out of his eyes so you can see like the the speed of his decision making and his movement and things like that so they are using like vr vr application for exactly things like that like game intelligence
0: and this is what we're learning but this is what let's be honest right this is what this is what's in the public eye So guess what? Imagine what's not. That's that's why. If anyone at
1: Oculus is listening and you want to sponsor our pod to do a VR where people can see what it looks like to stare into our microphones as we talk, uh, we are happy to give you that sponsorship. Um, I think we should move on to the Palace game. The one thing I will say, though, as a last thought on performance, I wonder if football will also go where swimming went, recognizing that you can gain that extra speed advantage by shaving your body. Um, And if they ever do go there – I think it's pretty clear that they're going to need a body shaver. And I think it's pretty clear they're going to use the Lawn Mower 4.0. Um, it is telling that at an awards banquet full of content creators, one of the most common things that came up and certainly came up in social media comments was about Manscaped. So I almost feel that maybe we're doing too good a job promoting them <laughs> and that we should renegotiate with them because I think they have become more associated with the podcast than I have. But, why not? I mean, they're great. The lawnmower Mower 4.0 is great. Clean shaven, head to toe. You're going to do the grooming anyway. I've always said it. You only need to nick yourself in a tender area once to say, why the heck didn't I just get a good device for this? They've got the ceramic blades, um, the, the the high intensity LED lights. You can see what you're doing, skin safe technology. Uh, they have the button lock, which was great coming over here because it didn't start you know, going off in my travel bag while I'm on the plane and then everybody's like, what's vibrating in your bag, dude? And then that would be weird. Um, they have the tonics and the lotions and the body wash, the nose and hair, uh, ear hair trimmer called the Weed Whacker. Go to manscaped.com, use promo code ArsenalVision. Vision. You'll save 20% off and get free worldwide shipping. 20% off and free worldwide shi- uh, shipping. And then you too can be uh, smooth and quick through the water or quick across the grass, whatever your uh, element that you may be in if you're an aquatic uh, mammal or a land-based mammal. That got weird. Clive, has had enough of that?
0: Absolutely. It's good link. Right. though. link.
1: thought so. Um, let's talk Palace. Patrick Vieira, uh, I don't know if you know this, Clive, but he used to play for the Arsenal. Uh, and he is returning to the Emirates. I am excited to see him across the touchline. Well, next him on the touchline would be Mikhail Arteta, who also used to play for the Arsenal. A slightly less successful era. Uh, but Patrick Vieira brings a Palace team that's performing better than I would have expected. Not perfect, but better. And I think he's getting some rave reviews from Palace fans. And you look at this run of games, and by the way, I have to laugh, right? We lamented there'll be no midweek football this season. But now, there's no midweek or weekend football because we play Monday followed by Friday. It's a really, really weird thing that's going on. But yeah, Patrick Vieira back at the Emirates. Clive, what are you expecting from a somewhat younger more energetic more pressing palace team a team that might want the ball even a little bit more um when they come to the emirates on monday and i can't wait to be there
0: yeah well i don't know if i've mentioned this before but patrick is yeah, my favorite ever player in the history First of, hearing of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so i will be singing that song on monday for sure um mm. yeah i i'm a, obviously as a player there is no peer in my mind so simple as that so let's move on to the team um Crystal Palace they weren't happy with Hodgson for a long time he reminded a bit of Ollie, really every time Solskjaer every time he gets close to the sack he pulls out two or three games and that was the same for Palace they had an agey squad they had a guy that kept him in the league and that was the most important thing for them they finally bit in the bullet and, and moved on from Roy he had done a good job for them quite defensively minded quite organised they had a number of players that are aged, and they clipped a few, and they've moved on with one of the young uh, Chelsea centre-backs. I always never get his name right. Is he Gaye or something like that? I think he I think he might have played for England twenty-one this week. Not a bad centre-back, quite strong, quick. Conor Gallagher, him from Chelsea. He was at West Brom last year. He was in the same year as Smithrow when they won the under-17s World Cup, and he kept Smithrow out of the team. So there's two players there that I'm sort of almost tracking their careers because... They, they've got a similar backgrounds at like a London Club. Okay, he's gone the lone route where smith Rose in our team with a star number on his back. So that's an interesting dynamic that Guy has not, nowhere near the Chelsea team, but he's more of a a, th- a third man in the three-man midfield, quite hardworking and dashing and bustling, where smith Rose a bit more forward-thinking. they got Michael Alisi from, from uh, Reading who's a lovely left-footed player, forward player. We, we don't need him because we've got one or two, but I do like him. He's um, very, very playmaker. He scores, very smart, one to watch. Eze obviously had the Achilles, but he's come back into training. So they've lowered it, but they still got the old dogs there. Brought in Edouard, and He's he's toying, he's doing a bit of work with Benteke, in and out, which whoever one starts. So they've, they've, they've got some, what they have is a, a bright future. Do you see what I mean? So it's almost like they're doing a, a mini Arsenal project. You know, and I think they need it because they felt a little bit stayed beforehand. I saw a poll before the season about who optimistic managers, about optimistic fans, sorry. We were right near the bottom. And Palace were right near the top. And the fans were seeing the signs. And they could see that things were changing. And they want to see new young players there, not on one-year contracts who are aged like Gary Hay, Cahill, etc. They brought in Anderson, who was at Fulham last year. He, he'll give you a chance. But it's new and it's fresh and it's energetic. And um, Patrick Vieira behind it, and obviously he's a he's a king, and and so yeah, they're in that honeymoon period, and I I find that club I, I do I do I got a little soft spots with Ballys actually, and not just because Vier is there, but I just like the way their fans are, how they approach the game. They they always look quite a fast team. You're never sure what you're going to get, but it just always looks quite interesting. So. Yeah, fair, fair play to them as a club. Well, I hope they stay in the league. They could do some investment in the grounds and the training ground. They should be doing that. They've, they've been here long enough in the league to be able to look at the infrastructure. But obviously, it's in part of London that Tim knows well. I think it may not be so easy. But yeah, good club. going to be hard. But you feel as though once you crack them, you can stay ahead of them. But um, it could be interesting game Monday.
1: One, it's really interesting if you look at what they've done. They start the season with a heavy loss to Chelsea, all right? The, you know, no no shame there. But they drew Brentford, 54% possession. Beat Watford in the Cup, 66% possession. Drew West Ham uh, away, 2-2 with 54% possession. Battered Tottenham, who get battered everywhere they go, uh, uh, 3-0 with 62% possession. Lost to Liverpool, again, 3-0, heavy loss away to a great team. Drew with Brighton with 47% possession. Drew with Leicester with 60% possession. So other than the batterings, the Chelsea and Liverpool tough games, Brighton is the only game where they didn't have the lion's share of possession and only barely in that game. Um, I think that's very, very different from the Palace of before under Hodgson where They sat back, they defended in a low block, they kicked long to Zaha and hoped that he could beat three men and, and manufacture something. What I wonder, Tim, is if maybe, just maybe, teams that want possession like this, it can go one of two ways. It can go the Brighton way, where actually it looks pretty good. But, you know, Arteta talked about not being brave enough against Brighton in the sense of, They want possession, they want to press you, they want to come at you, and you have to have the bravery to really stay expanded, stay up the pitch, play around them one touch and go. Against Brighton, on a soaking wet, windy night, and again, not providing excuses at all, it wasn't acceptable, that's not my point, but we didn't take those opportunities to play around their pressure. On the carpet, weather expected to be a little bit nicer for Monday, I certainly hope, and I wonder if that experience against Brighton and the lessons learned from how we didn't handle their pressure and their possession well might just pose a problem for Palace because it might be the perfect game to follow the lessons we picked up from the Brighton game. We've struggled with some pressure before this season, but I have a feeling that maybe in this instance – we we might be well poised to respond based on what what we just went through with Brighton, or do you think that's overthinking it to our to our benefit?
2: <laughs> no, no, I, I think there's a there's a lot of truth in that. that that's certainly what I'd be saying. Um, Where I on the coaching staff to the players, I think also what. Because of the way you know Palace they they pass out from the back now they have two a couple of good ball, ball playing centre halves I too keep forgetting the name of the guy they bought from Chelsea but they also got um uh, is it I, I don't know how to pronounce his name in Swedish um, Joe Jim um, yeah from Fulham and, and that was a really smart pickup because he was he was injured um, actually at the beginning of the time that Fulham signed him and then he came into the team and they started doing much better and that wasn't a coincidence uh, and I think that was a really smart pickup on their part actually so now they've got a couple of centre-backs that can pass the ball they haven't got like Gary Cahill and James Tompkins there anymore uh, clattering everyone and getting rid of it to Zaha um, so, so they do have a much more progressive style but really what I'd like to see is Th- that should that should give us an opportunity to press them as well yeah. that that's that's another way to be brave. Um, we've got guys who can do that Erdegard Smith Saka, they can all do that. Um, and that's that's an element of of play that I would just like you Ellie, I'd really like to see us develop because when we have the ball I just think I think we're so structured sometimes like structured to a fault. And there isn't that kind of fantasy and imagination. And and I do get it because we had um, a couple of managers who probably defaulted too much to kind of fantasy, imagination, instincts, individual feats, and we were a mess. And it's very difficult, I think, with these players to get that balance right between structure and imagination. But one way in which we can create unstructured players through pressing, and I, th- I think we've got the players to do it now. And that's just something I'd like to see us do more of um, so yes, definitely, I would like to see us do more kind of getting the ball around one touch, you know, nice triangles between Odegaard, Smith-Rowe and Saka. Um, definitely more of that and party kind of joining in, but uh, particularly because we don't get our central midfielders forward, particularly because we don't flood the penalty area, and that can make us quite easy to defend sometimes. And it means we have to be very, very precise because there's nobody there really sweeping up. It, it's that pressing. That's what I want to see. That's really what I want to see from from this Arsenal team. And it's um, it's interesting. I'm going to do that thing again where I, I make a comparison to the women's team because what they've <laughs> done this year is one of the things they've done. And I've I've listened to every uh, opposing manager's post match press conference this year. And what so many of them have said is that Arsenal, they can score every type of goal now. So they they were a very possession-based team, but now they score from crosses, they score from corners, they score from turnovers. And a lot of that is the manager just saying, yeah, I want to score every type of goal. Like, I, I want us to play this style mainly, but like I want us to score every type of goal and that's what the kind of thing and, and I just don't understand why more managers don't think like that and that's the type of thing I'd really like to see from Arsenal like even if because I, I don't think with this formation and with these players like we can really accommodate like a Ramsey type in midfield like our, our central midfield set right we've got we've got Xhaka we've got Partey, we've got Sambi like our central midfield set there's no point in pining for someone else to go and flood the box so how do we create unstructured playing for me that's about pressing I think we have the players to do it because you can't always pass the ball around every team and and I take your point Elliot maybe on um, you know a, a kind of cool autumn dry hopefully dry autumn night at the Emirates they might be able to do it but um, I, I certainly think forcing more turnovers—that is a way that Arsenal can can hurt opponents, create stress, create threat, so that we don't keep having to say, "Well, if every pass comes off um, to the correct millimeter, then we might be able to to score a goal."
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, it, I don't know if you saw, it, but there was one of these advanced analytics type sites did a a kind of cool data viz showing the pitch every team in the premier league and the zones where they press shading them like purple, you know, and Arsenal's pitch had no purple shading on it anywhere. So like, I definitely think there's an opportunity to, um, to improve on that. How's my audio?
0: In and out. I think... Um, to, to, yeah, Tim said the same as me. <laughs> I think um, I think um, the pressing thing, I, I, I totally agree with him about Anderson in particular. He do, he will give you a chance and he, he does want to play. So the pressing targets there at centre-backs of Palace are are pretty obvious. And they had a rough time against um, Brighton in, in the last game until they entered the, the last-minute equaliser, I believe. But So, yeah, I think that is an issue. I, I think... This pressing topic. I think we we all want to see it, but every but everyone sort of knows that that pressing is coming. And what's getting better is the exit strategies of teams. I think uh, okay, it shouldn't doesn't it shouldn't mean you shouldn't stop pressing? But I, I do think teams are being cute on their exits, and how, particularly teams that use wing backs. And I think that there is a—it's it's a game of chess, isn't it? It literally is a game of chess. Every game is a game of chess, and we lost a chess game against Brighton. Didn't lose the actual game, but they beat us tactically, you know. And I think if you know if it, it looks like it's a precious opportunity in this game, but we have to be wary of the. Of the tactical nuances, what teams are doing to avoid the press, to really bring the teams on, go right to their byline and then build up that way. Makes it very difficult for teams to commit right the way in, knowing they're leaving people exposed. If you're leaving slow defenders exposed to quick strikers, I I think we've got more tools in this team to be able to play in any part of the pitch we want. If we have to go super high, we've got two sprint in centre-backs now, so I'm not so worried. We're not talking about Holding a Marie, we're talking about Gabrielle and White, so let's have a race. You know, if you want to go in the yeah, we, air, we can do a little bit of that. So if you do go along, we can we can go for you, like we did against Spurs, we can take it, win that aerial ball and turn around on a stretched-out pitch. I think we've got more weapons. I thought we were scared of our shadows a bit against Brighton and I'm hopeful that we wake up and find ourselves and I think the Spurs game feels a long time away ago and I think it's important that we sort of re-establish who we are you know on Monday because it'd be a long time before we've seen us play and I think a lot of it we soon forget things so mm. it's interesting to see what tactics we end up
1: doing well i want to get into a little bit more of the selection stuff too because i think there's a couple of interesting possibilities there uh and always a little bit weird coming out of an international break because you don't know which players have come back in great nick smith rowe scored a goal Saka scored a goal thomas party scored a goal so obviously they will all repeat that feat on monday but uh unfortunately we've run out of time with tim so uh unless you have anything else to add on that point tim's on twitter at Stoberto. congrats again on the win buddy and i will look forward to seeing you on sunday
2: indeed me too my pleasure as always
1: all right that's tim you can find him on twitter at scoberto which i said already like the professional that i am so um live. let let's i want to talk about the event a little bit just to give people a window into that but before we do we got to finish on the palace game and i think the the interesting thing is like you never know coming back from international break who the manager will select. i actually thought Sam Laconga did fine against Brighton. He had a very specific role. We've discussed at ad, na- ad nauseum whether the role was quite right, whether it took him too far out of midfield. You know, tucking into protective space behind Tierney, and and that is a bit of a feature as we have that lopsided buildup. But I do wonder if maybe his starting position will be at risk in a home game. The manager might feel more inclined to go back to that line of three of Odegaard, Smithrow, and Partey, and then he can get the extra uh, attacker in Saka, Pepe, and Aubameyang onto the pitch, or maybe even a Martinelli. Who knows? A wild Martinelli appears. So um, do you have a thought on on whether, of all the players that started in that game, Samby's place might be most up for grabs, and, and maybe not even through any fault of his own, just a, a desire to sort of set up a little differently?
0: Yeah, I think we're still in the mode of how do we move past Shaka? Aren't we really in that place? Do we drop Odegaard in? Do we play Sambi? Do we play Ainsley? Do we play Elneny? I don't think the last one's going to happen. Do we bring Pepe in as an extra forward? I'm, I'm generally not sure. Um And I'm not sure what he's going to do this time. I think Palace, not just have they lowered the age profile a little bit, there are chat amongst their fans that some of their older players look fitter and faster and that's something obviously Vieira's brought in. So it's gonna be an interesting one. I think we should be focus- focusing on ourselves and, and what we look like. I'm I'm tending to move towards the you know, Odegaard deeper, if I'm honest with you. I really thought it worked well against Burnley in particular and I thought we sliced through them. I think you know, if Palace are going to have the ball a little bit more, we should be looking to get it and move it. Does that mean Odegaard should play out front? Uh, sorry, further up because he's a very good presser. I think it's going to be horses for courses. And I'm I, I'm not worried right which way we go. As long as positionally that we're aligned and attuned, I don't like spaces in the centre of the pitch, if I'm honest with you. I don't mind Tierney pushing, but does he have to push so early? But when you push early, you pin people. And I think. This is something I was thinking about the other day, actually, about pinning people. In that Brighton game, we didn't pin them. We didn't pin their back three enough. We didn't hit the touch lines and we didn't stretch them out. We didn't force a change in system. And by pinning, I mean keeping people high, but the right people high, keep them high make people stay back to create the space for you to to play through and avoid the press. We didn't pin, we rolled in, they rolled forward, they condensed the space, took the ball off us, forced us long. Having a striker like Pepe to pin one side, having a, a, someone else like Saka to pin the other, I think it's really important. Having midfielders wide, sometimes I think it brings the cavalry with you. You know, so, so what we do up top for me is almost as important what we do at the base of our midfield. The base midfield is, is less important to me. And I think if you look at how statistics are going and how football is going, the reason why we just spent £50 million pounds on a centre-back is he when he's got the ball at his feet, he's a, he's a midfielder. And that's what's happening. People are blocking lines at centre-mids and our centre-backs are now the ones that are distributors. Palace have one in Anderson. He's got a great tank on him. So I'm less concerned about what we do, long as we own the area. You know, with space wise, with either control or physicality. I don't mind but long as we can solve the problem that's been presented on the day, which we didn't do against Brian. I think pinning their back line is one thing. I build up, we've got so many players that can build up now, I'm not worried who does it, as long as we do it. But pinning them back is the key for me.
1: Mm. I don't I don't know, Clive, like I don't see us pin teams back. I just don't think that's a thing.
0: Sorry, when I say pin teams back, you know what I mean by that? You have people high that keep their people back, not pin, right, right. pin people Prevent back possession from- and holding and ways of attack. Oh No, we, we don't do that. It's essentially
1: preventing what Brighton were able to do, which is compress us down into exactly. our own box defense. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, just from a broader standpoint, I mean, we've got, th- what, three of the next four matches are at home. Palace... I want to say Palace, Villa, and Watford at home with, with a Leicester away in there, and they're not exactly in great nick. This leads into then a Liverpool game. I mean, this can be really special. 10 points from 12 was great, but I think the skeptics were able to cling to the fact that there were a couple of dodgy 1-0s and a dodgy 0-0, nil nil, plus a great Derby victory. The The Less skeptical among us, we're able to say 10 points from 12 is brilliant and a brilliant Derby win, what more can you ask for? This next run of four games has the potential to, I think, go from you know maybe having a, a sideways glance at that run of points and saying, was, was it real, was it a mirage, to really confirming it and feeling like we're on the up. And for me, what's going to have to happen is some of what you're talking about, expanding a little more up the pitch, just that little extra bit of threat, that little bit of extra danger and with three games at home against sides that are, you know, none of them are terrible but flawed. There is an opportunity to get on a fairly special run here. Do you, I mean, do you see this this window of, of four games? And I realize we did this with the last three games, but, you know, then it's Liverpool, then I think United is in there and, and there's some other difficult games. This is really it, isn't it? We can We can make a really strong move towards positioning ourselves to be in the reckoning for European places with a good run from these next four games.
0: Right, so in the next block, so it's blocked for the next international break. You've yep. got, mm-hmm. you got Villa. It's there like every three days. <laughs> you got Villa, you got Leeds, you've got um, Leicester. Well,
1: Leeds is a cup tie. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah.
0: Villa, Leeds, Leicester, and then you got Watford. Then Watford. That's it, next four games block. The good thing about the, the first three games is that everyone's going to play so if you're the manager you're thinking great all the players that should, that are not playing will play in the Carabao Cup game potentially then you've got two games in a in a week from Monday to Friday against uh, Palace and, and Villa you've got three home games whatever's going to play so you're thinking great my squad's back together again harmony back in the room right? so we can prepare for Leicester who are going for a bit of a dodgy phase at the moment, so and we do quite well at Leicester. So, I do think the challenging game for us. I'm not, I'm not dismissing Palace, but I think Villa will be very tough for us on on the Friday night. If we can come through the first two games, I'm really quite hopeful for the the last two league games. I think, but I'm hopeful for Leicester. But we also find Watford a challenge, and Watford quite an athletic team. And don't dismiss the fact they've got a new manager, and they'll be they'll be on the up. So. I don't look at these games and think they're all winnable. I just think they're challenges. I think the first one is the one to deal with. Villa will be tough. If we get two wins out of two, Leeds will take care of itself. Whatever happens, I'm not too concerned. We have the depth of squad to be able to rotate and do that. So, yeah, I think the first two games, I think the Villa one in particular is the one my eyes are on because they came here last year and they bopped us. There's issues there with them. They They fancy themselves. We need to we need to we need to sort them out we, we really do <laughs> we need to sort them out we owe them they be they'd be, be at home and away didn't they last year I'm not too sure mm-hmm. um that that can't happen again and so um we need to sort them out and, and, that, and that'll feed into what for the home so I think the next block is interesting will it be defining no, I'm not so sure it will be nice to have longer you know a longer runs we haven't really coped with the pressure of playing well consistently. You know, we don't have big, long winning runs like we used to. We can't seem to maintain it. And I think if you look at us from 30,000 feet, everyone thinks we're going to have two good games, two bad games. I would see that that a challenge if I'm in that dressing room and I want to fix that and get some continuity going. But I think that's the most important thing in this block. Can we keep redefining who we are and building on our sustainable way of playing? At this moment in time, although we had three good results and then a draw... It felt like recovery. Now we can all breathe. What do we actually look like? You know, what are we trying to be? I think that's what the next block of games is I'm looking for. Have the international break, and then we go to Anfield, and then we hide behind the city and see what's going to happen on that day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> let's <we'll laughs> cross that bridge when we get to it. So let's finish with this, Clive. I mean, obviously, we touched on at the beginning meeting you was brilliant. Like I, I had so much fun and you, your son is quite wonderful. And yeah, I mean, it, it, they say never meet your heroes, but in this case, uh, it was totally, worth it. <laughs> yeah, <you're> and, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I just, it, it was, it was probably a more moving, humbling and enjoyable experience than I had any right to anticipate. And, uh, it, it's a memory I'll take with me forever because, me, you know, meeting you for the first time and, and doing it under those circumstances, it was really special, uh, especially in the wake of a pandemic that canceled multiple events where we tried to get together with people. So, yeah, I mean, just yep. if you had anything you wanted to share in terms of how it struck you and and being around a lot of people, it is it is interesting seeing, uh, you know, obviously your relationship to people and, and within the community and the respect that you rightfully uh, garner. So that was that was fun as well.
0: Yeah, well, the first thing first, the res- respect thing. I don't expect it <laughs> and um mm-hmm. so it's a huge a huge surprise no, and we're not hugely visible on, on camera so people i'm surprised that people even knew who we were and so that was quite interesting um, there's
1: a good reason we're not on camera mate <laughs> exactly <laughs> you, you saw the pictures I, of me i
0: have i have I have a face for radio that's for sure <laughs> i think um i think you know i will say obviously we met for the first time last night well I'm, I'm not sure people are aware of this but Elliot is the driver of this podcast. I mean, mm. the true driver. You, you you do the. It's easy for me to answer questions and, and or, think or about not football. Answer them. <laughs> <laughs> and think about football. It's what I do. My friends will tell you I've been doing it for years, right? So this is not this is not new. This is exactly who I am. I and mean, the only difference is is Elliot interrupted me and not my mates. And so. <laughs> So this is this is simple, but it's not so easy to have the ideas, to have the energy, to have the drive, to interact with all the patrons, to keep us on track, how we've developed ourselves. And a lot of that's come from, from yourself. And I have to say, I don't tell you enough that I appreciate. And to get the reward we got last night was more for you, really, because it's a lot of unseen work that goes into it and i know you care deeply about the community of such and um so for me yeah it's easy right I'm, I'm i've always got things to say but for you um it's a, I think you really deserve that moment and i know that scott and paul were not able to be there and tim he, he was otherwise engaged at ladies game and he would have been there and um i wish they, i wish they were actually because they would have seen that side of things and um uh, so, yeah, that was a bit that really struck me. The people in the community, not just our community but other communities, they're nice people. You know, this is what, you know, sometimes we get with each other online, but when you meet people, there's nothing to see here. They're nice people. They're nice people. Some people do things a slightly different way to we do, and that's absolutely their right. And then um, they respect what we do, and I respect what they do. I don't always agree with everything, but who cares, right? just people producing information and content different motivations ours are quite clear and you know what the judgment is in the people that listen and that's all i'm interested in the people that actually care about what we're trying to do and they're able to articulate that either online last night or via voting so i I, i'm i feel really really quite pleased you know really pleased for the Arsenal vision community in particular but elliot i have to say i'm most pleased for yourself
1: uh, it's, that's more kind than I deserve. I appreciate it. I mean, I I can only say that uh, I I am sometimes glib (laughs) to a fault or self-deprecating, but really what I was last night and, and also when I went to the Emirates for the first time, to be fair, is just moved and moved more than expected. And I think you reach a certain point in your life where you have your job, and maybe it kind of sucks, or maybe if you're lucky, it doesn't. And you're raising your family or you're doing whatever it is you're doing at that stage of your life. And, you know, to have this, at this stage of my life, to have something, where there's a community like this that means so much to me without ha- ever having expected it to to be a part of my life it, yeah I, ca- I can't be thankful enough for it and the people i've gotten to meet and the people i get to to do the pod with the one thing that anybody who had anything nice to say about our podcast last night said it's the camaraderie it's the rapport it's the different personalities that that make the show and uh all i can say is i couldn't agree more and i couldn't be more thankful for you and for tim and for paul and for linus who brought us all together and for scott um who who adds you know a, a really cool component to what we do as well so yeah brilliant just brilliant, and. um I, I had a blast, as is evident <laughs> by uh, a lot of the the subsequent pictures and videos and, and audio recordings that indicate maybe I had too much of a blast. And when I had to wake up this morning for my day two COVID test, um, like I said, there's no COVID living, living in that sample, man, because it's all alcohol. That's all she's getting out of that cheek swab. So... I think we should leave it there. Uh, I really hope everybody listening who is able to come on Sunday will come. If not for the ticketed portion, of course, then at four thirty, come join us. There will be wonderful people there uh, to meet in person. It's nice when someone stops being an icon on a screen next to a tweet or a Facebook post or a, an Instagram post or whatever it is, and, and becomes a human being. And so I look forward to that. Um, I'll be at the game, and anybody who's partying, you know, and, and going out and celebrating out and around the game would be great. And for those of you listening who can't do it, believe me, I know that. That sense of FOMO. And and I can just say thank you for the privilege to be here and, and to tell you that I, f- I feel what you're feeling. But um, we will try to live stream or at least record and then replay the event on Sunday. So there'll be a way to see it. Certainly we'll put it out as an episode and there'll be a lot more to come. So Clive's on Twitter, at Clive P A F C, and is in the real world as Clive Palmer, as it turns out, not just on Twitter, at Clive P F C. Uh, thanks and love you, buddy.
0: Thank you very much. And you too.
1: My name is Alex Winthrop. Can me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. So this is it. Then uh, we'll talk to you on Sunday. But also, we love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Palace No.